it's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. That's a spicy Strawberries is kind of the quintessence of industrial agriculture in California. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. And I'm Tom Philpot, food and agriculture writer for Mother Jones Magazine. I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. The secret ingredient today is strawberries. To guide us through the fields of, particularly of California strawberries, we are very lucky to have Julie Guthman. Julie is a professor of social sciences at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She's the author of a couple of terrific books. My favorite is Weighing In, Obesity, Food, Justice, and the Limit of Capitalism. She's also the author of Agrarian Dreams. Most recently, Julie has been announced as a Guggenheim Fellow for 2017 to study a a little bit more uh, about strawberry wilt. But this isn't uh, going to be a conversation just about the and outs of strawberry chemistry and fungal chemistry. Instead, the way that Julie sees the world is as a rich system. And so, Julie, why don't we just sort of jump straight into to thinking about strawberries? First of all, why? Why, why should we care about strawberries? Okay, well, first of all, thank you for having me on this show. So why should we care about strawberries? Well, strawberries is kind of the, the kind of quintessence of industrial agriculture in California. Um, it's the fifth highest value crop in the in the state. It's also got the most heavy pesticide regime of by far of any other crop in the state. And it's and it's and it kind of captures so much of the dynamics of of what's going on in California. Strawberries love the coast, just like suburbanites, for that cool, moderate summer weather, and so it fights with suburbanites for for that wonderful coastal land. And so it's just there's so many dynamics about California's economic development that really, you know, play into what's happening with the strawberry industry. And Julie, isn't it also true that if you eat strawberries in, in the United States, they're probably coming from California, from those very coastal Beautiful yeah, California grows 90% of the strawberries in, in the United States. You know, clearly growing strawberries on such a massive scale, like basically providing every grocery store in the country with strawberries, um, they're grown in monocrops. And that leads to some problems in the field that have, for the past 30 or 40 years, required a chemical solution. Um, and you've written a lot about that. And I wonder if you can talk us through the ecological challenges, uh, first of all, of that kind of monocropping of strawberries. Okay, sure. Well, um, California actually started having problems with all sorts of blight in, in strawberry production early on in the 20th century. It was the 1910s and 1920s when strawberries were a growing crop in California, but by far less, you know, far fewer strawberries than they're grown today. Growers started seeing plants dying and wilting, and so they this is this is an an age old problem in California. Um, but the main thing is, um, well, I should say that, and when they started having crops um, uh, die, um, and they would die, they would just move on to other fields. So the the problem is not new, but the, the issue is that the there's um, there, there's several sorts of problems in the so, soil borne problems for strawberry production that include includes nematodes, it includes weeds, 
But the main, my main concern and my main interest are a set of soil pathogens. And there's one, Verticillium dahlia, that's um, a widespread plant pathogen. It's all over the world, but it started um, affecting strawberry, strawberry production, again, at the early part of the 20th century. But then Californians, I mean, the California farmers had different ways of addressing it. Like I said, they would move on to other land um, if they had an infestation or, um, and, and they certainly didn't uh, assume that they would get um, perfect crops all the time. Um, so what happened is um, they they started for well they started trying to deal with breeding for pathogen resistance in about the 1940s and they had some success but then what happened is um University of California scientists discovered that if they fumigate soil before planting strawberries um with a combination of chloropicrin which is a wartime tear gas and methyl bromide which was first used as a um fire retardant, that if, so if they fumigate with the soil with that, it would kill the pathogens in the soil, and it would allow growers to plant year after year on the same soil, not have to move on, not have to rotate out other crops. And so that started in the 1950s and 60s, and they also, it, it included a whole other technological package. It included um, tarping the soil to hold the fumigants in, and w which would also suppress weeds. And that worked pretty swimmingly for farmers until methyl bromide began to see more scrutiny because it's an ozone-depleting agent. And so the Montreal Protocol of, on Ozone-Depleting Substances um, called out methyl bromide as one of the substances that had to be phased out of use California strawberry, or the U.S. government, um, on behalf of California strawberry growers, um, fought heavily to keep methyl bromide around. Um, received some what they what, what they called critical use exemptions. They said that you know our, our growers will go out of business without methyl bromide, so we need to continue to use it, and that delayed the um, phase out of methyl bromide but it didn't end it. And just this year, methyl bromide can no longer be used on strawberries. So in addition to piercing a hole in the ozone layer, methyl bromide had another problem as well. What was that problem? Well, methyl, well, methyl bromide has, um, is toxic to people who are around it. It's a, it's, it's a neurotoxin, um, and it caused respiratory problems um, for people in the, who in the vicinity. That got much less play in the debates about methyl bromide than um, than the ozone depleting qualities. Because cause this is true for chloropicrin, which continues to be used and continues to be used even more. It, um, it causes all sorts of respiratory problems. You know. I don't want to take this in too different of a, a, yeah. a pathway, yeah. but I, I want to ask a little bit more because you brought up that, you know, here's the strawberry and it kind of represents other problems as well. And one thing that I kept thinking about is this, when I was a kid, we would pick strawberries and they were so tiny. And now you get these strawberries in the grocery store and they're massive. And I don't know if I just wasn't buying them in the grocery store because we had them or if they've actually gotten bigger over time. 
And, oh, they, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so I wondered if you could talk, one, about that whole process of like this growth of what we expect from vegetables and fruits now, but also, um, and how that happened, and also the way that we kind of normalize these discussions around what chemicals are used, like that it's okay to use chemicals at all, or maybe the framing of the problems and some problems inherent in the way that we frame the problems around these discussions. Okay, well, let me take the first part first. Um, so, because the the, um, the productivity of the strawberry is very much wrapped up in the story about chemicals, because once they were able to control the soil pathogens with chemicals, the strawberry industry started focusing on other qualities in their plant breeding, and they started breeding for size, for productivity. They began to breed for um, strawberries that would produce lo- at a longer period during the season. So this is why we, you can see strawberries in the grocery stores 10 or 11 months a year coming from California because they breed for longevity. So they bred for all these other qualities. Now, one of the reasons they bred for size is they believe that consumers like that. They believe that consumers like a, a big, red, tasteless <laughs> strawberry. Um, but it's also they, that would reduce their labor costs. Um, because they're the, a bigger strawberry is easier to pick. So there, a lot of the system all works together, the, you know, the land values, the chemical use, the breeding program, and that, that's actually what my book's going to be about. Um, the normalization thing is, is, is a tougher thing. It's true that, stra- you know, the, to- the, to- the, the use of toxic chemicals on strawberries is extraordinary, but indeed it's very, very difficult to grow strawberries without a chemical regime. And, you know, I mean, I, 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 I hate to say it, but, you know, I've talked to a lot of growers and many would be put out of business. And here's the thing. I mean, strawberries, um, they, you know, they, they are one of these crops that seems to attract pathogens. And those growers who have successfully grown strawberries for a long time without the use of chemicals tend to grow strawberries in a very different way. Strawberries are a minor crop in their systems. And so, for instance, you can rotate strawberries every three or four years with um, cover crops like mustard seed. Um, and one of the best crops to rotate strawberries with is broccoli because broccoli act, acts as a mild fumigant. In some parts of the world, they actually just grow the broccoli and toss it. Um, here we don't have – the market for strawberries is a lot bigger than the market for, for broccoli. You know, you got to would have to teach your kids if you want your strawberries, you have to eat your broccoli, right? <laughs> but you know, it's um, it's uh, it's challenging to sell the, the broccoli for sure. But once you're that the very high value crop of strawberries are, is not a regular crop, how do growers make the payments on land that's been valued mm. with the presumption that you're growing your strawberries year after year and where you're competing with residential real estate? for the use of that land. So it's just, I mean, to me, I mean, there's a bunch of things that make make it, diff, you know, a bunch of interlocking uh, factors that make it very difficult to grow strawberries, but the kind of, the, to, to meet those land costs without chemicals is, is, is virtually impossible. And so the growers that are successful are growing, they have exceptions, like, you know, the, the kind of poster child of, of uh Ethical strawberry growing is um, Swanton Berry Farm, um, owned by Jim Cochran. He's in every kind of book that talks about the exceptions. He's he's always featured, 
And he grows, out, first of all, he grows out of the main strawberry-growing regions, um, and he also grows on conservation easement land, so he's getting a big break in the cost of his land. And he's um, he's also uh, has a union contract with United Farm Workers, but he's you know well known in local markets, and people are willing to pay uh, quite high premiums for his strawberries. Well, what's the um, what's the price difference between, say, the sort of Driscoll's um, strawberry and the Swanson berry for for people who who haven't well, come across it? Yeah, I mean Driscoll's. Um, Driscoll's is one of the more expensive strawberries because they um, they try to sell on uh, their quality. They they have a lot of proprietary varietals that mm. presumably are tastier. I don't know. You know, a conventional basket of strawberries in the summer probably goes for a dollar basket for the consumer, whereas uh, Swantonberry Farms would sell for two fifty or three dollars a basket. Yeah. You've raised a number of the uh, of features that are particularly Californian here. I mean, you know, the, the, yeah. the the competition with residential real estate, for example, and I'm just taken by the fact that you've got this competition for land to to produce more, and that's why you need the chemicals because you're you're in this arms race with real estate uh, and with with you know, the the demands for land return provoked by that. Uh, but there's another question that you you talk about wonderfully in your work, and I wonder if you can help us uh, understand it a little better. Uh, often when we think about California. In agriculture, it's, it's often presented as this sort of the, the bleeding edge of high tech agriculture, um, where um, right. it's uh, just in time production and uh, you know, factors of production moved on and off the farms, and uh, you know, workers are just as much an additive as, as soil amendments or water. Um, but one of the things that you've, you've pointed out in your work around strawberries is also uh, the, 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 the not the high tech capitalist characteristics of agriculture of strawberries, but actually the feudal characteristics of uh, strawberry agriculture about how, uh, in some ways, the the land arrangements or the arrangements under which workers produce strawberries can looks very, very ancient indeed. It doesn't look at all like um, the, the sort of bleeding edge of neoliberal capitalism in the fields. So can you talk to, talk to us a little bit about that, about sh- the sort of modern day sharecropping that's happening in, in strawberry agriculture in California? Sure. Um the sharecropping issue is a little bit tricky, um, so let me see if I can explain it. Um, so, uh, Miriam Wells wrote about this um, maybe 30 years ago now, and she and, and Eric Schlosser also wrote about it that talked about a sharecropping system in um, California strawberries. And the way it worked is um, after kind of a okay so first of all i should just say strawberries are very labor intensive work the the cost of um labor is a, a huge cost for strawberry growers and and strawberry growing strawberries is a, a huge undertaking economic undertaking it costs nearly 50,000 an acre these days to grow strawberries which is a lot of money and there's a lot of upfront um investment costs because you have the fumigation, you have the irrigation, you, there's a lot, a lot of upfront fum, and you have to buy your proprietary varietals or, or some varietals, and so you make that investment, and and you don't get labor, which is a separate issue. I'll talk about it. Then you're in trouble. Anyway, so there's so there, it's, labor is the as Miriam Wells put is is the fulcrum of profitability. So in the um, uh, 1970s, at a time when the, the United Farm Workers was stronger. And there was um, the Agricultural Labor Relations Act in California was in full force. 
and there was a lot of support for workers, um, what one of the things that growers did is they started um, re they returned to a system that had existed before of sharecropping, and by that it means that like the large buyers like Driscoll or like Giant or Well Picked would um, hire folks who would then use their family um, family labor and then um, and maybe hire a few workers of their own and then and then pay that money basically back to the to the shippers that system's actually gone away um, and I don't want to um, I mean people still make claims about sharecropping in strawberry production but it really doesn't exist in that sort of farm. Instead, what we see is various forms of contract farming. But the kind of the, the, the way that the contracts work range considerably. Like there's some growers that are what are called custom growers. They have they take very little risk. I mean, basically the growers, the um, shippers, say to these guys who I, I think most of the guys that I've talked to are custom growers are really. Um, long-term trustworthy growers who who just seem to always produce what the the shippers want so they'll just say you know they'll just say hey look you just grow it out for us and we'll just pay you a flat fee on the other end of the spectrum are contract growers where the growers take all the risk um but they get the upside reward if prices are high. That's how most of the growing is done. Now, this isn't addressing the labor issue, so I'm putting that aside. So in the middle, um, but this speaks to the sharecropping issue, in the middle are these kind of contract growers, um, and, and they're not a huge percentage of the sector, but they're significant because they, I think these are the guys that are going to most get hurt if there's a shakeout. There already is a shakeout in strawberry production. And these are guys that are, were once farm workers or ranch managers who have been kind of anointed to be growers because they're seen as entrepreneurial. And what happens is um, so, some of the companies or their intermediary companies work in, in partnerships with them. So basically they lend and, many, and these guys I'm speaking with are almost all Latino. And what they do is they lend them money, um, or, or they that's not exactly true. They go into partnership with them where the, the company puts up a, a big share of the equity, and then the, the partner grower is supposed to come up with equity, and they take out all this debt to do so. But then in turn, they have to buy, like they're working with a Driscoll's company, they have to buy um, – Driscoll's proprietary varietals and, and Driscoll's uh, um, uh, market, you know, their their boxes and their crates and all that. And so, and then the the um, managing partner also often also finds land for them and leases land. So the grower has very little say over what they do, and they get very little upside reward. And and these are the guys that are just mostly getting hurt by kind of a shakeout in strawberry production. Now, that's different than the laborers because um, all those types of growers, all contract growers hire laborers. And at this point, there are really no laborers on a, on a sharecropping system. Now, many of them are paid as, uh, on, on piece rate, and some of them are paid on a combination of hourly wages and piece rates. Um, and that very much depends on the time of year and the difficulty that growers see in recruiting labor. 
But, you know, one thing that's really, really changed and as, uh, as affecting the industry is that um, California growers are experiencing a major labor shortage. Now, they always complain about that, right? I mean, this is how they've justified wanting to have guest worker pro- programs. But, I mean, this is a, a, a complaint I heard over and over in my interviews. Growers were more freaked out about a labor shortage than they were about um, fumigant regulation. Mm-hmm. And many growers spoke of not being able to have, like, you know, 30, 40, 50 acres harvested because people would not show up and harvest their berries. And that's a huge uh, loss for those growers. So they're really freaked out about that. And there, it, it does it – does, seem to be that there is some sort of labor shortage. And what, right now it appears that agricultural wage rates are going up, but not enough to attract new workers. I mean, so this, you know, this is, I mean, the thing that I'm just flummoxed about, I just don't understand, and I wish I could just ask some of the people I interviewed, why would you vote for Donald Trump? Because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> these guys are like, you know, most of the growers in California are Republicans, and like I and they complain about labor shortage. I just don't understand their reasoning for voting for someone who is going to worsen this labor shortage. Now, having undocumented workers, having a um, a fortified border, has served the strawberry industry quite well um, in the past because you have, um, it, you know, having uh, the fear of deportation creates a c- compliant workforce, right? People aren't going to complain about oh, um, uh, wage theft or um, a violation of pesticide use laws when, when they're worried about being deported. But now I think that the, the, the border policy is really hurting the strawberry industry, actually. And um, interestingly, many growers I spoke to justified the use of fumigants to attract labor because they say what they say is happening is that workers are going around and inspecting fields before they decide to sign up to work for them, checking out how um, easy how, how how easy the berries are to pick if you know if they're those big red ones we spoke about, um, you know how close together they are, how, how much that money they can make in a field because they they know that they can make more money on piece rate if the the berries are easy to pick. So growers are saying, see, workers want fumigation because mm. <laughs> that way they can um, make more money. And the workers aren't exposed to the soil fumigants unless it's in a nearby field because the, the workers, the soil fumigants, importantly, and a lot of people misunderstand this, the soil fumigants are, are used um, before planting. And so the harvest workers might be exposed to other chemicals, but they're not exposed to, exposed to fumigants per se. But there are workers who are exposed to them, right? right. The people who are applying them are, are exposed. Yeah. The people who are applying them are generally suited up to the hilt. And, you know, I, I would have liked to, but it's very hard to find a fumigation team to interview, right? Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that those are documented workers, now, what's interesting is if, if you follow fumigation rigs around, you can see after fumigation, you can see guys called shovelers that are um, after the fumigation, they're um, uh, they're unprotected. They do not have masks, and they're taking dirt and throwing dirt on the um, on the tarps, so they're not protected. Right. But the people who are actually applying the fum the fumigants tend to be completely suited up. Now, one thing that you hear. 
uh, from time to time in California when you get one of these labor crunches is the, you know, sort of consistent ongoing move to mechanizing as much as possible. Like the, the tomato crop in California was largely mechanized and shifted into processed tomatoes. And I've been reading, you know, I've been doing a little reporting on this labor crunch nationwide. And I'm once again seeing this fantasy or maybe uh, approaching reality of fresh eaten crops like strawberries, um, growing varieties of them, finding the right machines to mechanize the harvest. Um, is that something that you have come across or that you see as a possibility? There's a lot of talk about it, but um, I think that um, most it's just like tomatoes. To grow a strawberry or a tomato that can withstand machinery is to grow one that's probably going to lose a lot in taste and appearance. So I think it's 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 pretty much talk at this point. I mean, the other thing that's been really interesting that I've been tracking is um, having to do with the the concern with the soil pathogens. Is there some folks that are really interested in moving toward greenhouse operations um, or mm-hmm. to growing, if not fully greenhouse, if not you know fully controlled environment agriculture, at least moving to um, kind of um, substrate. Um, as a, uh, as mediums for the strawberries, so like planting in coconut coir or in um, in um, peat. Um, so so basically non-organic materials or not or, non-organic, but materials that that won't carry pathogens or even mm-hmm. hydroponics. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, some folks think that's really the the way of the future. And you know, arguably that would be better for workers. I mean, if you look at some greenhouse operations, at least you're standing up. And not squatted over, and you know, and strawberry. I mean, strawberry workers. It's it's the bottom of the rung because of the working conditions. Hmm. You're stooped, bent over, stooped all day, and with people have terrible neck and back pain. Um, but uh, you know, California, uh, the California industry kind of backed off of the movement to um, to substrate onto greenhouse because they know that their their competitive advantage is their climate and their soil. And once you start moving into a kind of more synthetic environment, why grow strawberries in California? Why wouldn't you just grow them closer to their markets in the East and Midwest? Mm-hmm. So, um, but that, you know, so people talk about that in robotics as kind of the wave of the future in strawberry, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, so with your new, with your new book, um, yeah. what are your... How are you going about your research methods and your your questions for that book? Well, my re- I, this is um, the book is really a culmination of a, what's now been a three or four year project. The project was inspired by um, uh, uh, inspired by the introduction of methyl iodide, which is was a, uh, promoted as a substitute chemical for methyl bromide, and methyl iodide was far more toxic than methyl bromide, and it, it stirred a huge controversy. Um, and so I was just, um, it was a, there was a few things that really made me curious about methyl iodide, um, one of which was, um, you know, I've been kind of an abiding critic, critic of the alternative food movement for being kind of apolitical, but also the food movement really took a lot of action and, and helped defeat um, methyl iodide. And the second thing, I was really curious about epigenetic effects. I was curious if... if um, if uh, the potential for intergenerational effects affected the 
political debate around methyl iodide? And the answer is no. But anyway, so that's what started that this project. Um, so it was really a project about um, tracking the debates around methyl iodide. And so the original methods were about um, getting the uh, regulatory transcripts and looking at the 50,000 public comments around methyl iodide and then talking to growers and people in the industry about what they were going to do, whether they were going to adopt methyl iodide. Well, methyl iodide was taken off the market while that the proposal for this was under review, and so I ended up um, getting it partially funded just to find out where the industry would go how the industry would go forward, and then I had then I got funding for an additional project to look at um, what the industry was going to do without methyl bromide. So I this has involved um, talking to um, maybe uh, close to 75 growers. Um, I had research assistants work um, talk to a lot of um, strawberry farm workers. Although unfortunately we couldn't, you know, these were harvest workers, and my question was more about the fumigation. So those. And interviews are interesting, but they don't speak to my immediate questions. And then we also, I also talked to maybe 50, 75 people in the industry. So it was mainly interviews and, again, the review of the regulatory transcripts. Um, and so that research has mainly been published in a series of articles. There's a few that I'm still working on with uh, one of my research assistants, but that's those are kind of done. And this book was just kind of inspired by a separate set of questions. Um, it's just really in the course of these interviews that I just started hearing these kind of interesting connections about, you know, I, I, kind of funny things people would say like, well, you know, one of the problems is it was too warm, so I had to put my strawberries in the freezer to get them um, kind of cold enough so they'd bl bloom well in the, in you know, they, they'd be productive once they were planted. And then there was... You know, just kind of, I just kind of, I, I, I'm trying to think of another example, but I just started seeing these kind of connections about the kind of natural qualities of the strawberry, and how the industry was um, organized. So the book was just motivated by somewhat different questions. It's not there will be a chapter on uh, regulation of fumigants, but it's really about how the strawberry industries natural advantages have been turned into a set of interlocking threats. Mm -hmm. So I'm just writing a different kind of book than my articles and a different kind of book than I've written before, actually. Um, uh, Julia, I've, I've known you as a, a critic of uh, the, the, the local food movement and, and, uh, yeah. and celebrated that. And, and so it, it's surprising to hear that, that there's something that the food movement got right. Um, what, <laughs> what, what, what was that? And how, what, why do you think that happened? Well, um, I think you know my my critics my criticism of the the food movement, um, and this is a, a long standing one. Is and it's always a sympathetic criticism, mm. right? I'm not. Yeah. I, I'm. Um, but I, I is it is it the food movement has tended to embrace the easy alternatives, like local organic, and has stayed away from. Op, you know, for more political fights, has not, has kind of not been political, has not, you know, not gotten involved in policy. More recently, has been involved in farm bill politics. That's fairly recent. Not gotten involved in the oppositional struggles, like you know, and it really has to do with the origins of organic, which is, you know, the topic of my first book, which was it was always meant to be an alternative, and and as the the folks gave up on kind of opposing. Um, 
directly opposing industrial agriculture per se. So, you know, this this is what I've been teaching about and thinking about for many years now. And I was excited to see a, a movement that actually took on a specific regulatory battle and won in the case of methyl iodide. So that was really intriguing to me. So one of the fascinating things about methyl iodide is that it was approved by the EPA, I think, around 2006, and later approved by the, the California Department of Pesticide Registration, which uh, can be independent of the EPA, can challenge the EPA on, on certain things. Right. And it caused right. a huge firestorm because it's so toxic. Um, you know, I remember hearing that it can induce cancer cells in, in tissue, in lab tissue. It's, it's so right. reliably carcinogenic. Um, right. And so it caused this big scientific backlash. And yet it presented this this ozone friendly, um, you know, legal solution to the methyl bromide problem. Um, and yet the company that made it walked away from the market. It, uh, it, it decided to take itself off the market. So I, I wonder if you can talk us through how that happened. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so again, it was, it was when it, it, when methyl iodide, um, was approved by Department of Pesticide Regulation, it was, it created this huge, and so activists um, did a number of tacks. And one thing they did was um, they generated a, around 50,000 public comments um, to Department of the Pesticide Regulation um, did, uh, contesting their approval. Now, the, the comments are pretty interesting because they were generated um, mainly by the Internet and, and kind of classic slacktivism. And a lot of them were just people didn't, you know, change the wording. Um, and, you know, so there was many of them. And, you know, and the, the head of the Department of Pesticide Regulation at the time, Marianne Warmerdam, was an appointee of Governor Schwarzenegger and, and disregarded almost all of those because they were just slacktivism. And in fact, she disregarded almost all of them because she said that, well, they weren't commenting on the scientific principles. They were just protesting it. Um, nonetheless, uh, and, and, and the other thing that was really interesting about these comments is that um, while many of them, I mean, the, the issue around methyl iodide was how it would affect um, people who are would be exposed to near the fumigation, so mainly farm workers and nearby communities. And it was striking how many comments were about, don't, I don't want your cancer-coated chemical on my baby's strawberry a lot right. before, you know, <laughs> doing that usual kind of consumers, consumer politics, even though it really wasn't going to affect consumers at all. But enough, you know, a lot of people did get that it was mainly going to affect farm workers and farmers. So there were 50,000 comments. It, that didn't affect the um, the... DPR's decision to continue on, but it did start to create a chill. And then there was a lot of buzz. There was a lot of letters to the editor. There were public hearings. There were protests um, on the Capitol steps. They did a mock fumigation. And there was some picketing by farmers' fields. And so what started to happen is the strawberry industry itself started to get worried about public backlash around the use of the chemical. So it didn't appear that the pest control advisors, these are people that, that advise farmers on what to do, they didn't seem to be supporting um, methyl iodide. Um, there were some early tests on the chemical, and the reports were mixed. Some people said it wasn't that efficacious. 
Um, and a lot of what I learn in doing the interviews is that some of the big um, uh, shippers were getting word from the retailers to whom they sell that, like, they weren't going to take um, strawberries that were treated with methyl iodide. So it's, you know, so the kind of people at the, like, you know, the downstream end of the supply chain, the retailers and the big shippers were, like, kind of put the kibosh on it and and were really discouraging growers or or certainly not, I don't know how much they were discouraging, they were not encouraging use of methyl iodide. And then, you know, a lot of growers I spoke with said, look, I was just really worried about having picketers outside my fields. I don't need that. Some said, I wish I wish it was... I could use it, I think was much better chemical. A lot of them said, no, you know, I think it was way too toxic. I mean, that was really mixed among growers. But growers really started to worry as well. And that was a lot from both the public comment but also all this other activity. And then the the nail in the coffin was a lawsuit that was filed. Um, Earth Justice was the lead uh, attorney, but it was filed on behalf of Pesticide Action Network and um, California Rural Legal Assistance and several other groups and two named farm workers. Um, and it was really about um, DPR's failure to abide by California environmental law in approval of the chemical. And so it, it was. it's a really interesting um, uh, case, a really interesting lawsuit, um, because uh, it's true that they were – DPR was kind of busted. There was a couple ways in which um, Warmer Dam just really, you know, she overlooked, um, uh, she, she just didn't follow good scientific principles in approving, in approving the chemical. There was her agency scientists had opposed it, thought it was far too toxic. They had an external review committee that thought it was far too toxic. But then there's like, um, then there was some smoking guns, like they had used a method of assessing um, how big the how big the buffer zones should be, and and there was a, a a memo that was discovered in this lawsuit from Arista Life Sciences to DPR saying that they would like to see less conservative assumptions, and so she kind of mixed and math mixed and matched methods to make for less conservative assumptions and smaller buffer zones. That became part of the evidence. So there were a bunch of things like that, and um, that just looked bad. And in the end, it, the judge looked like he was going to rule against Arista. And then, at the kind of the last minute, Arista went before the court, and the court said, "I'm inclined to rule against you, um, based. On, I don't even have to follow, you know, go through the whole ruling. I'm just inclined to rule against you." And then at that point, they said, "Well, it turns out we've just withdrawn um, methyl iodide from the market because we no longer see it was." commercially viable. And and they, and Arisa had made these huge mistakes. I mean, they had assumed that they had they would um get approval right away. They assumed that they would have adoption right away. They didn't um I mean, the kind of critical use exemptions that allowed growers to continue to use methyl bromide hurt them because they thought, you know, Arista was making the calculation that none, nothing else was going to be available. So so Arista made its own miscalculations, but basically, you know, the 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 movement activity again, put the kibosh on it. So the social movement got political and actually stopped something that didn't hurt consumers but hit, but hurt farm workers. It sort of looked outside of its own, you know, interests in, you know, cancer-free strawberries or whatever. 
But what kind of regime took its place? Like, is this this chemical they're using now to fumigate, is it any better? Or, like, what's going on now? Okay, sure. Well, what's happened since since the withdrawal of methyl iodide and now that methyl bromide's um, gone, um, chloropicrine use is on the increase, for sure. And chloropicrine, um, again, is a wartime tear gas. Um, It's... Chlorpicrin's also seen somewhat tighter restrictions in the form of um, buffer zone requirements or the use, uh, you can reduce your buffer zone requirements if you use what are called, uh, total, what's called totally impermeable film. So there's, you know, there, the mitigation measures are, are somewhat tighter. Um, and there's more uh, growers experimenting with organics, frankly. Now, it's unclear to me um, that that's sustainable the way they're practicing organics because, like I said earlier, um, successful organic growers treat strawberries as a minor crop, and a lot of these growers are just getting in um, and seeing how long it's going to go until they get out or they're finding pasture land that's immediately certifiable as organic or they're... um, they're just, you know, or they're buying or finding leases of land that's not been, um, that doesn't seem to have a big infestation of pathogens. And, well, you know, but they're, I don't think they're going to do three, four-year rotations. They might do every other year rotations. And right now, a lot of it's being driven by the um, higher prices for organic strawberries as well as um, fumigation concerns. So that's what's happening now. I just um, I just don't think that um, that the latter uh, strategy of, getting into organics in, in a kind of half-assed way is going to work for very long because these uh, the pathogens will reappear. And the other thing that's going on is two new pathogens that hadn't really been apparent in um, strawberries um, have, have appeared in the last um, few years, um, macrofamina and fusarium. And uh, even though some of these, some there's some other methods that are able to control verticillium, including chloropicrin, these things, these new pathogens are quite virulent. Um, and so, you know, the strawberry industry is kind of on a, at a crossroads right now, and where they're going to go. So, in answer to your question about the social movement success, um, yeah, it's true that it was, it, it you know, it was only a. a um, a temper. I mean, it was a success. I mean, this is a, a major nasty chemical that was thwarted, um, but it hasn't stopped chemical use altogether, obviously. Um, and it's unclear to me what if I, I just I'm not aware of people trying to think about building on that su- success. But it certainly kind of changed the climate for growers, and I do think that more growers are interested. I, I mean, I, they see the writing on the wall on fumigants, and so there is interest in moving more, there's much more resources actually being poured into farming without fumigants, um, including more focus on plant breeding. I mean, still industrial methods, but um, including like focusing on plant breeding. But I do think it's a it's a change. Um, I, unfortunately, I think there's still going to be a shakeout of low resource growers um, because the, the more innovative people that are able to figure out ways to grow without fumigants you know, a lot of them are going to take a lot more capital to work. Um, you know, I think that the the policy changes and the big wins are 
you know, they're they're promising. But I'm wondering if you even if you see promise in some of the other rhetoric, like where do you see the interventions possible in, into how we're relating to food? I know this is a this massive question, but like where do you think some conversations are changing around food that you see as hopeful and how are people intervening to make those changes? Well, the biggest change I've seen around food in the past six or seven years is finally there's attention in the food movement to um, food labor, and not only farm labor, but food labor. That's a huge change in conversation. I would like to take partial credit for it. We had a labor across the food system conference here so, uh, about maybe about five years ago now, and um, and that helped uh, spark a conversation. But not not only us. I mean, there's uh, you know the Restaurant Opportunity Center, Sari Ujjayarmayan, and there's a lot of folks doing really really good activist work around food labor. But that's but I think that's I think the food movement is finally seeing that now. And and you know I've always felt you know because as you know maybe you know maybe some of your listeners know I've been a, again a kind of an abiding critic of the alternative food movement. But I've also seen how critiques. Have kind of generate new have generated new iterations of the food movement, and so I do think that the kind of one of the abiding critique of mine and many other folks, scholars and activists, has been the um, you know ignorance of labor issues, and that's now changing within the food movement. So it's, I think that's really hopeful. I mean, I have to be honest and say that um, you know we uh, we all know right now we live in very unusual times. And I'm really curious to see what's going to happen with the food movement in the Trump administration because, um, you know, I think there are some interesting intersections. I, You know, I think the, the labor issues are going to be very interesting now that we have uh, somebody who's explicitly interested in deporting people who grow our food and produce our food. Um we don't. We we certainly see what he's doing, what Trump's administration is doing in environmental policy, and so I think these pesticide issues are going to become, uh, or pesticide battles are going to become uh, more uh, heated if indeed there's any um, uh, word that they're going to roll back existing pesticide regulation. It's you know I I say to my students, they say, well, it's so inadequate. Yeah, it's inadequate, but it's a lot better than nothing, right? And so I think, you know, so I'm interested to see if the food movement, you know, takes up these. I, I mean, I think the food movement is going to be forced, uh, hopefully forced in the position of fighting these kind of, un unfortunately, defensive battles, but important battles to defend. Um, and then, of course, the other thing we don't know yet is what kind of stance that Trump will take in terms of the farm bill. But, I, you know, I just can't imagine it. can't imagine too much good can come of, I mean, so far the record's pretty bleak with the Trump administration. It was the day after the election. We said, well, at least the, we don't really know. And now we kind of know that he'll be on the wrong <laughs> side of everything. Um, so um, I think I think this presents new opportunities and or new challenges, but also new opportunities for the food movement. And um, it, it, there was ever a time to, you know, to kind of get off the, like, let's just, like, all have, you know, beautiful, gorgeous food from the garden and, and really think about, how food ramifies and all these really important uh, labor and environmental issues and social justice. I mean, this is the time. And if, if the food movement doesn't move on that, then I'll be sad. <laughs> Julie, when I think about the food movement under Trump, I go in two different directions. Sometimes I think yeah. that, 
you know, if we're going to be saber rattling with North Korea and, you know, dropping the mother of all bombs, quote unquote, and and doing things like this, it whips people up into a frenzy as it should and makes food issues seem sort of trivial, maybe. And I wonder if it's not going to drive a pulling back from food issues. On the other hand, if if national politics are such a disaster on the, you know, on, on the national front. Um, and I think this, this happened around the election of um, the second election of George W. Bush in 2004, when it seems like national politics are such a disaster, there, maybe there's a turn toward food and a turn toward, you know, what's on my table and what are the politics around yeah. it? Um, yeah. which, which way do you think it's going to go? Or is there some other way that it might go? No, I, I, um, I agree with you. Um, I and I, I mean, my first reaction to my, you know, with my students after the election is like, please, you know, start working on something else besides food. It's driving me crazy. This, these are these times are these times are too are too uh, difficult, um, and they're important. And those are there are really bigger fish to fry right now. But I, again, I think that the key is finding the way in which food intersects with um, the, the, you know, some of the deep damage he's doing and it certainly intersects on immigration law and it certainly or on the border policy and it certainly intersects on environmental policy and especially in terms of pesticides and again we don't know what he's going to do in terms of the farm bill so i think i just think yes the food movement could do one of two things it could it could like just like drop food or it could just retreat toward food i'm hoping it does something else which is like Re, like really recognize here again here that there's challenges but here are the opportunities to um, be more oppositional and build mo- you know build movements and alliances with people who are most hurt by the food system um, against some of these very very disturbing policies. Well, I know we're running we're running a little short on time, but is there anything that we left out that you really wanted to touch upon? Oh well, I could talk forever, but I can't talk forever because <laughs> I have students coming. Um, no, I mean, there's so, you know, like, there's a, you know, not, no, not today. Not I think today. we've covered a lot. <laughs> yeah, we did. Okay. Thank you yeah. so much. We really appreciate You're it. You're welcome. This is great. Yeah. All right. Take care. Take care. Okay, you too. Okay. Julie Guthman is a professor of social sciences at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She's also the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, which is supporting her work on strawberry production in California. On our next edition of The Secret Ingredient, Raj Patel, Tom Philpot, and I will talk with Susan Aram, president of the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, about the future of U.S. farming. Be sure to subscribe to The Secret Ingredient wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review if you can. We'd love to know what you think of the show. You can also find more information along with our archive at thesecretingredient.org. The Secret Ingredient is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. Our engineer is David Alvarez, and I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for listening. It is the season for sneezing. And if you need to curse, all you have to yell is, dim it. Real Texans want enchiladas. So let's all have a tipple of eggnog to wet our beaks. Any idea works for a poem. Send yours to the Texas Standard team and listen anytime on the Typewriter Rodeo podcast.